our media, our whole culture, I think is really invested in the idea both that war is necessary and that abortion is necessary because everyone knows someone who's been in the military. Everyone has probably, you know, a grandpa, an uncle, a cousin, a sibling who has been in the military. And so it really is so interesting to me that to express anti-war sentiment is often to be considered anti-American. And I think that really goes to show how tied up our whole national identity is with the violence of war. And at the same time, to be anti-abortion is often considered to be anti-woman, right? Which says to me that so many people are viewing the right for women to kill our children as central to womanhood. But again, everyone knows someone who has had an abortion. Everyone loves someone who has had an abortion. And so the idea of saying abortion is wrong or war is wrong is to indict us. It is to to indict those we love. It is to perhaps accuse them of participating in violence. And the moral weight of that, I think, is too much for us to bear without an understanding of the nature of trauma. That was Amy Murphy, and you're listening to Choose Life Abort War, podcast for peace. Choose life that we might be, choose peace that we might see our tomorrow. Let justice roll like a river, flow like a river down. Hey, welcome to Choose Life of Board War Podcast for Peace, where we have conversations to transform the public conversation about war, peace, and security. I'm Thad Crouch. If you're a new listener, we have four main categories, unmasking militarism, promoting a just peace ethic, creating a culture of conscience, and the category of this episode, which is declaring war as a life issue. This category is meant to persuade and have pro-lifers consider that war is a very important life issue. And so in this episode, Amy and I will be discussing abortion quite a bit for that purpose. Amy Murphy, the founder of Rehumanize International, is here in Austin, Texas on a book tour. We had a wonderful time last night and some really great questions and answers. And um, I'm going to introduce Amy. Um, uh, um, I'm going to tell you who Amy is for me. Um, Amy who you are for me is the one who just never, ever stops caring and never stops loving and never stops trying to end all forms of aggressive violence across issues uh, in a way than which we really rehumanize ourselves more first as we rehumanize others. Um, and if you get sick, if you have a chronic illness, you keep going and going and going. Um, when, when Amy uh, gets uh, trashed in the press, uh, she often wears it like a, a, 
badge as if they had Mean Girl for Mean Girls, who is Regina who? George. Regina George has personally spoken to her and insulted her. But for me, at the heart of who Amy is, is someone who, at a time when she may have felt most abandoned and alone and vulnerable, when she was faced with a death threat, when someone she knew actually said, I might kill you if you don't do what I want. Amy has this big, empathetic heart, and you thought of someone else, and you, and you sondered someone else in that moment. And in doing so, you changed your life. And, and by continually holding people in your heart and thinking what it would be like to be in their shoes, uh, you've been comfortable, I suppose, at being uncomfortable or, or at home being uncomfortable sometimes in your heart. And it's, and it's this, this great love that you have uh, that inspires me and I think so many others. And I'm so thrilled to have who I'm declaring as the most influential voice in the consistent life ethic movement of the 21st century. I'll say so far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Thank you, Thad. Um, it really has been such a gift to be able to be here and hang out with folks in Austin, but particularly to get some quality time with you. Um, so thank you for having me on the podcast. My pleasure. So, uh, Amy, would you be willing to, to tell the story that I alluded to? Yeah. Um, it's one that uh, sometimes gets easier to tell and sometimes remains difficult. Um, so I was 16 years old, a sophomore in high school, and had been in an on-again, off-again relationship with a guy. Um, at the time, you know, I, I growing up, I was in California, and even though, um, you know, I was the child of a loving Catholic family, um, I basically was like, well, I, I don't think it's possible to be queer and Catholic, so I left behind all the faith and morals that my parents had tried to teach me, and um, I was a queer, pro-choice, feminist atheist, um, you know, trying to figure myself out, as all teenagers do. But when I told this guy that I wasn't comfortable having sex with him anymore, he broke up with me. Um, which I wish that I had seen like how objectifying and dehumanizing that was in and of itself, but I still cared about him. So when he called me on Valentine's Day, um, just a month later, to say that he was lonely and was so sad to be delivering flowers um, to other people and didn't have anyone to give flowers to or receive flowers from, um, being the kind and hospitable person that I was, I was like, hey, you can come over and we can sit and talk on the front porch, but my parents aren't home, so, you know, we have to stay outside. My parents had a very strict, no members of the opposite sex in the house rule if they weren't home. Well, I, I honestly think he took advantage of that, and when he got to the house, he raped me. 
Um, so for all intents and purposes, like our relationship was over, right? Like we weren't talking anymore after that. And even though I tried to tell friends of mine, like, Hey, this guy isn't safe. He violated me. He hurt me. Um, they were like, no, Amy, like he's such a good guy. He would never do something like that. You're just a slut and a whore. Um, which was awesome. I say that in the most sarcastic way possible. Um, it was really hard. And um, the only friend that I had left, um, you know, a couple months later when I hadn't had a period, she was like, hey, Amy, just call Planned Parenthood, make an appointment, have an abortion. You know, like, it's not a super difficult thing. Um, but I was stressed about how to hide it from my parents. Um, and, um, well, because I had told this friend of mine, word eventually got back through the grapevine, through the high school rumor mill, as it does, that I thought I was pregnant. And we got back to the guy. And um, he knew my class schedule and came and pulled me out of my architectural drafting class. Um, he was friends with that teacher as well. And so even though I was, like, trying to send the message like through telepathy to the teacher like please don't make me leave the classroom please don't make me leave the classroom like mm -hmm. please just allow me to stay here in the classroom at my desk please don't make me leave um i, I don't think the teacher uh, received any of my telepathy uh, it turns out i'm not good at it <laughs> and um so i went out in the hallway to talk and the guy said to me amy you need to get an abortion, I'll drive you and I'll pay for it, but you need to get it taken care of. Um, and here's the thing, like, I was pro-choice at the time. Abortion was the only thing on my mind because I was top of my class. I was... Um, you know, starting on the JV basketball team, I was actually brought up to varsity at that time for the playoffs. Um, I was going to honor bands with, um, you know, that I was just going to all these honor bands locally and regionally, um, you know, where they were saying, you know, like, this is one of the best bass clarinetists in the whole region, you know, like that sort of thing. I was auditioning for all state at the time. Um, I was excelling in my math and my science courses. And my teachers were basically of the opinion, like, Amy, you're slated, like you are on your way to an Ivy League education. And that was all that I wanted. And, um, so abortion was the only thing on my mind, but I asked him, like, hey, like, why does this matter to you? Like, we're not even talking right now. Like, what? And he was like, well, I don't want my mom to find out about what happened. <laughs> and then he said to me, Amy, I'm thinking that if you don't get an abortion, that I might kill you. And I was so scared. Like, my heart was racing. My mind was racing, um, I was shaking. I told him to leave and I went back to class. And as I was sitting there at my station, something just like shifted in me. And I realized that what he was telling me was you're an inconvenience to me and you're an inconvenience to my future. Therefore, I'm going to kill you.
um, I just realized that I, I didn't want to be like him. I, I couldn't be like him. I couldn't use violence. I couldn't use oppression against another human being. I became so unsettled by this whole experience. Um, because in that, in that moment, I felt this radical solidarity with all victims of violence, but was particularly with pre-born children. And I became committed to a philosophy of nonviolence. And granted, I was 16 years old, right? I didn't have these big words for it. Um, you know, I, I wasn't yet well acquainted with the work of Gandhi. Um, and I didn't have the words like consistent life ethic for it. I was 16 years old. My brain was just like killing humans, bad. Like, you know, like there's like, like equal sign there, right? Like that's, that was all that I was really thinking. So I became so unsettled by this whole experience when my own life was threatened that I made it my goal to go unsettle the rest of the world because I knew that to live in a culture that was so comfortable with violence at every level, you know, interpersonal, governmental, etc., that it was to be complacent. Mm -hmm. It was to take our own rights for granted and, in fact, to be complicit mm -hmm. with these structures of inequality, with these systems of dehumanization, with these realities of violence. Um, so I very begrudgingly <laughs> became pro-life. You know, like, I, I was a feminist at my core. I, I embraced this idea that... Um, you know, humans had equality, and that's why, like, feminism was so crucial, because historically, um, women and girls have been so deeply uh, devalued and dehumanized in our culture. Um, so I knew being pro-life was going to destroy what I had left of a social life. And you were in California. Yes, yes, yes. I was a teenager in California, and so... Um, you know, I, I dove right in, but I also had a really hard time figuring out where I fit in to these various movements for human rights, the right to life, etc. Um, because, you know, on the, on the quote unquote, like right to life, pro-life side, I wasn't conservative. I wasn't Catholic. I was a feminist. I was, and still am queer. Like, I was like, where do I fit into that? When I've been told that, you know, the the image, mm -hmm. that the type of uh, a pro-lifer is a, you know, straight, white, conservative, Catholic man. Like, I was none of those things. <laughs> and then on, you know, the, the other side of the coin, on this, in all these different human rights movements, whether we're talking about anti-war or anti-death penalty, anti-torture, anti-racism. Mm -hmm. um, so many of the organizers in those spaces made it pretty clear pretty early on that, like, being openly pro-life was not 
super acceptable in those spaces. Um, so as I grew, got older, um, I made it my goal to create an inclusive space where I would have felt welcome as 16 year old me who was really coming into this new understanding of the world. I wanted to build a movement of every human standing for every human, um, you know, where people from all sorts of different backgrounds could come together and could work for human rights for all members of the human family from conception to natural death, no matter their circumstances. Um, so thankfully I eventually found the consistent life network when I was in college. Um, but you know, like the, the pro-life organization, the, the club that we had mm -hmm. on campus was a consistent life ethic club and several members of our leadership were part of the LGBT community. Several members were atheist or agnostic. We had a lot of religious diversity and, you know, just ideological diversity. Um, you know, people from all sorts of different places on the uh, mm -hmm. political spectrum too. Um, and it was a beautiful, you know, little, little picture of what I wanted to see our movement become mm -hmm. in the years to come. Yeah. So that's how I got involved, I guess. Um, the, there's so many things I love about that story and your awareness of the political stereotypes across the issues and this stand, not just to be holding on, you know, begrudgingly becoming pro-life, but like, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to be pro-life. Um, and just, you know, you're going to have to face all these stereotypes and the world is going to have to face you not fitting into the stereotypes. <laughs> I love that. And it's um, something that the consistent life ethic activists are often up against um, here in the United States. And I, I expect in other places too. Um, when I was very young, I was, I was basically Republican because my parents were Republican, right? And then... When um, at first, when I when I really started reading the gospel and seeing Jesus is is spending less time talking about what you have to do to get into heaven, which is important to me, but spending most of his time talking about this kingdom of God thing and and loving your enemies and loving your neighbors, and it and it, it um, that sort of changed me. And then when I had um, uh, my own very uncomfortable awakening uh, from being a brown soldier to to being an anti-war peace activist. Um, um, I was was really looking to fit in, and and I I became uh, you know a, a Democrat or a Green for for a long time. I was pro-life. Uh, but a mentor that I trusted said, you know, um, there's really nothing we can do about that right now because of, of Roe, and maybe in another century that will change. And there's so many people involved in that movement that, you know, you could have this political party and, and work to end war. And um, and I just swallowed that and, and accepted that. And um, it, it took me a while to to take a stand to be who I am the, the way that you have. Um, so I'm curious, with were you already kind of a 
peace activist, anti-war person before this, or did that come later? It definitely like was part of the culture in California. I grew up with Green Day, like just being a part of the popular culture in our area. So when American Idiot came out, that was actually like kind of formative for me, and I still listen to that album regularly, even though some of the references are like, you know, only for those of us who grew up in the you know, the aughts. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Because yeah. I'm like, uh, should I pretend I know what song that is? No, I don't. It's a whole album. Oh, it's a whole album. And they actually made a musical out of it about a guy who goes off to war and then ends up, I think, becoming a conscientious objector. Wow. I haven't watched it, but I have listened to the soundtrack many times. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um so, like, it was broadly a part of the culture, and granted, I think my parents, along with many other people, um, you know, many other friends' parents and that sort of thing who lived in the area where we did, had very mixed feelings on the retaliation after 9-11 mm-hmm. and our government's response to that um, militarily. Um, but the general vibe was very... Um, America first, mm-hmm. sort of. So I will say, like, even though, um, <laughs> like, Green Day and, like, this similar, like, protest music was a part of my, like, embracing, becoming more vocal about, like, an anti-war sentiment, um, that my own, you know, personal conversion experience and, like, you know, just thinking, like, killing humans is bad, <laughs> that was more impactful in the long run because I continued to come back to it and challenge myself whenever I felt like I was just like doing things to go along with the flow or, mm-hmm. um, you know, to try to make friends or <laughs> that sort of thing. So, I mean, I mean, it's both, I guess. But I definitely think that my own personal experience was the thing that continued to challenge me to become um, better read mm. on the subject and to, like, mm-hmm. to learn more and to actually, um, you know, not just have this anti-war sentiment as, like, a phase, right? Okay. <laughs> um I think that that can be a challenge. I think it remains a challenge for the anti-war left movement. Um, where was that opposition when Obama took office? Right. And so it's really interesting how nowadays some people are like, oh, Amy, like, you're so left-leaning. You know, these are people who, who don't know me in real life. They're like, oh, like, you're you know, stereotypical progressive leftist. I bet you didn't speak out at all against Obama. And I was like, you want to go back? You want me to dig through my Facebook posts and my Twitter posts from the Obama administration era? Because I can do that for you. Because we were constantly calling him out for yes. the shit that he was pulling when it came to war, when it came to not closing Guantanamo when he promised to do so. Mm-hmm. Who? I mean, not to mention his whole like pro-abortion stance. And that's... I think a real danger in what I call, as you know, our bipolarizing duopolistic political paradigm um, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that is in this crazy fight dance of we're going to ridicule your side and attack your side, and your side's going to ridicule, and 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 so it can be very comfortable to choose a side, 
and stay in that side. And it can be very easy when you do that to say, oh, I'm a Democrat, so I'm going to bad talk George W. Bush for all of his war policies. And as soon as Obama is in office and gets a Nobel Peace Prize, basically for not being George W. Bush and mentions, you know, warfare in his acceptance speech, there's a restaurant in Austin when that happened that said, free Nobel Peace Prize with order of two shrimp tacos. <laughs> And I love that. <laughs> um, so it's really easy to, when you choose a side and you're so into an ideology and you've got everyone around you agreeing with you and confirming what mm-hmm. you're, you know, mm-hmm. that to do that. And so, you know, I, I say to people, like, whatever your beliefs are, you know, uh, for me, it's it's important. It's something I've learned a lot from you to have it, you know, really more coming from from empathy. But whatever that is, um, to have it not just be because of loyalty. Because if all you're going to do is be concerned about loyalty to your party and your ideology, you have to take a look at the fact that this country was founded by British traders. So, so with that said, I'm curious. Now I realize there's a rumor mill. You've lost a lot of friends. And um, did you face, when you had this conversion to become pro-life and killing humans bad, were you, I mean, it may have been a while before you were publicly voicing that. There's a lot going on in a, in a 16-year-old girl's life there. I'm curious, when you started that, uh, did you get some flack or what were the reactions from any of your, you know, super liberal pro-choice uh, California friends, um, if you still had any at that moment? Um, at that time? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I basically lost what friends I had left. And yeah, like there was a lot of other stuff going on. It's, it's a weird time. I finally started talking about it publicly my senior year. So it was about two years later. Um, Granted, like, I made new friends over the course of time. Um, I ate lunch alone a lot for Mm. a while. (laughs) Um, But I eventually did make some new friends who I think a lot of them are, like, on the autism spectrum. And Mm -hmm. so, like, we just kind of all accepted, like, we were weird and had our quirks and foibles. And, um, in fact, like... They've actually done studies that show that, like, autistic people are more likely to hold, like, a consistent philosophy, hmm. regardless of social pressure. Interesting. Um, which, the it's really interesting, like, the, the researchers uh, really framed that in a really negative way. <laughs> <laughs> and all the autistic people who read the, the report afterwards were like... That's not a negative thing. Like holding to our values, even when it's socially hard to do so, is actually a really good thing. Like that's a really positive thing. <laughs> that, is one of the that, we, that we honor in our heroes all the time. Right. Right. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why I ended up like feeling comfortable with them, even if we didn't necessarily agree on everything. Mm-hmm. Um. They were like, well, that's Amy. That's that's who she is, and that's okay. Um, And um, I did a a speech competition for, like, the Rotary Club where I could win, like, $300 or something if I won. And I was like, well, 
I don't think there are a whole lot of people participating. And um, my physics teacher, my senior year, was like, Amy. Before he even like really knew me and through the physics class, he was constantly trying to bug me to join the speech and debate team because he knew that like since I had sort of changed, um, I, I was like just a persistent and you know constantly trying to learn new things and talk about them. But I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do public speaking. If I do public speaking, like oh, I was like nauseous just thinking about it. Right, I hated it. But he was like, well, there's a $300 prize. And I was like, that's a lot of money <laughs> for a 17-year-old kid. <laughs> um, so I, I did uh, end up participating in that speech competition. And I did my speech on Susan B. Anthony and like mm. the first wave of suffragists in the United States who really were historically pro-life. Um, and granted, like there are other things about them that are not excellent, but I really wanted to explore this idea and talk about feminism and this pro-life holistic equality beliefs that I thought was possible. Um, I ended up winning. So I got the $300. Um, I did not know, um, that it was highly frowned upon to read from your notes. Um, oh. So I, I had done that, and um, one of the judges was quite angry at me, uh, not only for reading off my notes, but also for the topic at hand. She was oh, like, this sure. is too political, too political. Uh, but there were, like, all the other kids there were also talking about political topics, so I was like, what? <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was interesting. Um, but when I got to the second round, I think the, the price for that was like $500 or something. I did not know that I was not allowed to take my note cards with me up to the podium. Mm-hmm. Um, so I fumbled my way through that second iteration of the speech and like panicked. And I think I was bright red the whole time. So I, I learned pretty early on that like public speaking was not exactly for me, <laughs> which is ironic yes. given what I do now. But yeah, so with all of it, um, I mean, in high school, I think it's unfortunately quite common that our social lives and finding shared interests with our peers is often like the most important thing Mm -hmm. at the time. That was pretty accurate for me. Like, yes, like I, I cared about all of these different issues of violence and it was important for me to learn, but I didn't really know where to start Mm -hmm. and I didn't have a mentor to like walk me through it. Yeah. No, like nothing like that. Um, so honestly, like that's a huge reason why I wrote the book. Because so I was like, hey, if I can help some other high school kid who is trying to figure out where they belong in these movements for human rights, I want them to have a good starting place, a good foundation for the work that they will will do with their lives. And you said last night that you wrote this book for your your sixteen year old self, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's beautiful. And and you don't have to have a PhD to understand this. No, no. I, I hope, I mean, there's some words that might be like big words for seventh or eighth graders, but I think it's middle school reading level, maybe high school reading level at the most. So, I yeah. Think so. I think so. And let's take a moment. At the time of this recording, you're on a book tour. Yeah. Right yeah. Yeah. So, um, tell us a bit about that. Maybe some, some upcoming dates. Um, totally. Where people can find the the book tour, there'll be a link uh, posted in the podcast notes. Yeah, so we've been on this tour now for about seven weeks. It's been beautiful and difficult. I don't love living my life on the road, 
but I really wanted to take this message to local communities and be able to really get the ball rolling for impactful action that really will respect human dignity in all these stages and all these circumstances. So we've been to, I think, 30 events so far, um, which has been beautiful. I have loved getting to meet new people and see old friends that I haven't gotten to see in years. And honestly, just like meeting people who are seeing people who are so passionate about Mm -hmm. our mission. And several people have said to me, you know, like, your organization and the work that you are doing is the only reason that I am still involved with these movements because Mm. you've created a space for me to feel welcome. Um, Like that, Mm -hmm. it really, like dagger to the heart in the best way. I wish that all of these movements were more inclusive and more welcoming. Um, So I'm glad that we have that space now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So upcoming events. Um, we're headed to Houston today. I doubt it will be posted in time for that, but, um, we have upcoming, um, Mobile, Alabama on Saturday, November 5th. And you can find that. Humanizeintl.org slash book dash tour dash 2022. You don't want to type all that in. You can just Google Rehumanize. They're coming up, and you can get on the site and click on events and just go down to Amy's book tour. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a ton of events coming up. For, you know, we have um, New Orleans, Mobile, Naples, uh, Florida. I'm, I'm not traveling to Italy, unfortunately. <laughs> um, Orlando, Atlanta, Durham, North Carolina, and um, maybe Richmond, Virginia. Oh, we're not sure yet. And then a bunch of stuff up in the Northeast still to come. We've been out West so far and that was gorgeous and lovely. And, um, I don't know if you don't see your city on the list of locations, but want to bring me in for a talk, uh, shoot me an email. Um, Amy at rehumanizeintl.org. All right. The book is Rehumanize, A Vision to Secure Human Rights for All. Did I get that right? You did. All right. Thank you, everyone. This has been part one of a three-part interview with Amy Murphy on declaring war as a life issue across three podcast episodes. Look for links in the episode notes to Catch Amy on her book tour dates. Uh, For the remaining tour, south in the United States, going east of New Orleans, up the East Coast, and all the way up into Toronto, Canada. While uh, the book, Rehumanize, A Vision to Secure Human Rights for All, can be found on Amazon and other places, you can both save money and have more of your money support Rehumanize International's great mission if you purchase it from Rehumanize's website, linked below. Also, check out the Rehumanize podcast with multiple episodes on a variety of issues concerning life, dignity, peace, and justice. And if you want to be sure not to miss parts two and three of this conversation with Amy, the best way to do that is to subscribe to Choose Life or Bort War podcast for peace so you'll get notified as soon as they drop. 
If you'd like to support this podcast, you can make one-time donations at PayPal and buy me a coffee. Additionally, if you want to regularly support us on Patreon, you'll soon have access to the full hour and a half unedited conversation with Amy Murphy and myself. Thank you so much for listening. This is Thad singing. Choose life that we might live. Choose peace that we might see a tomorrow. Let justice roll, roll like a river, flow like a river down.